Hello and welcome to the Rogers Brief. I'm Adam Rogers. Thank you for watching and thank you for listening. I'm going to talk today about Day 21 of the Mass Casualty Commission proceedings, which have just wrapped up and which uh, featured mainly Michael Hallows, who is an expert from England on emergency alert systems, their governance, their functionality, and uh, some policy uh, advice that he's given. Some good advice. Uh, he was a very interesting witness, I thought, today. And then I'm also going to revisit the issue of the death of Heather O'Brien and some of the conflicting evidence that we heard on that uh, timeline. We heard from uh, Constable Ian Fahey, and we've also heard from Corporal Dwayne Ivany, both of whom were on that scene and had uh, conflicting accounts of what took place that day. So what I want to do is give you a little a sense of how I think a judge would approach that kind of evidence and try to reconcile some of the discrepancies. Uh, but first, uh, just a, a few minutes on Michael Hallows. Uh, Michael Hallows was a retired uh, police officer from England who was then the head of the Australian Emergency Alert System, helped develop it, and was uh, leading, that, uh, leading that effort. And so uh, also familiar with the Canadian system, he's done some consulting and some presentations uh, in Canada on the Emergency Alert System that we have, the Alert Ready System and also has done some work and is familiar with the system in England. So some good comparators for, uh, for our system and some lessons to be learned there. One of the main uh, things that uh, he talked about was the governance of the system. And in Australia, it was led by the government, whereas in Canada, it was led by the uh, private entity. A private company has created the Alert Ready system, which is then operated uh, through governments uh, you know, along with the CRTC. So that makes a difference uh, in a few key respects. One is uh, that in Canada, you have to be on a 4G network. Your phone needs to be on a 4G network in order to receive the emergency alerts. Whereas in Australia, with the government-run and created system, anyone on a 3G phone, so an older phone, would be able to receive the alerts as well. And the uh, some of the data today suggested that probably 65% of Nova Scotians would not have access to a 4G network through their phones. So uh, not a perfect system in terms of getting word out to the public. However, uh, certainly much better than uh, Twitter, which was used by the RCMP a little bit on the morning uh, of the 19th of April uh, as well. But, you know, they had... I think maybe a hundred thousand users. I'm not sure or followers. I'm not sure they had that many at that time. But that's even if they were all Nova Scotian followers, which they're not, and many would be even bots. Uh, that is still less than ten percent of the population. Uh, probably even less than that as a percentage for uh, rural parts of Nova Scotia. So uh, be I'd be interested to see the data on Twitter users in uh, Cumberland, Colchester area. The other thing was. In Australia, it was as, as it was established and being developed, they did public education on how the system would work, and they did that much through the schools, so they would provide the information to students who would then bring it home to their parents, explain it to the families. The other thing that they did was ensure that all public uh, safety, any organization that had responsibility over public safety would have direct access to be able to utilize the system, rather than having it centralized through an emergency management office as it is here in Nova Scotia. And so, and especially the police, the police, uh, you know, so for ongoing uh, 
active criminal situations, active shooter situations, the police would have access to that and be able to utilize the system. Now, related to that, the other key concept I thought Mr. Hallows described today was the concept of subsidiarity. Subsidiarity in that context means that the lowest ranking uh, supervising officer who is on the scene and has, sorry, the, who is closest to the action and is on the scene, uh, whoever the ranking officer is among that crowd should be able to provide an uh, make an alert happen, either issue an alert themselves or direct that a, an alert be issued immediately. So imagine in uh, this situation, the night of the 18th of April, uh, Stuart Baselt, uh, Aaron Patton, and Adam Merchant are go the first ones into Portapique. Uh, uh, Constable Baselt was the acting corporal at that time, so the ranking officer, and he, at uh, you know, shortly after 11 p.m. that night, had uh, radioed uh, the thought that maybe an alert should go to the public. Well, under the system, as suggested by Mr. Hallows, and as it, it is as it exists in other places, he would have been able to issue that alert at that time uh, to phones in the local area, at least. So. Uh, an important concept, I think. And there was another note, too, that uh, Heidi Stevenson, the morning after on the 19th, had suggested that some sort of report go out to the public or message to the public as well. She didn't She didn't specifically mention uh, an emergency alert, but um, that may have been the case. Uh, had she known about it? Had they been told about it? But what we learned yesterday was that the RCMP effectively refused to learn about the system. It was presented to them in 2016. They were offered uh, an opportunity to have direct access to the system, but they refused it. And then they didn't even have a protocol in place for how they would use it if the opportunity arose or if the, the situation necessitated that an emergency alert be issued. So um, the other thing we taught that we heard about today from Michael Hallows was the timeliness of it. And he described this as sort of a reverse 911 situation. So the alert would go out and you would expect people to get it right away. It's an urgent situation. Timeliness is important and that they would should take action accordingly in the same kind of a time frame you would expect. If you called 911, you would expect resources to be deployed immediately or, you know, urgently. And he described uh, trying to work the time frame from the time you realize there is an emergency to the time an alert is issued down to eight minutes. Now, what we heard yesterday of the system, uh, you know, how the protocol worked, there was 18 steps involved. Uh, so, you know, eight minutes, you're not going to take 18 steps in 18, you're not going to take 18 steps in eight minutes. Uh, but that's the kind of time frame that Michael Howells would suggest should be, uh, should be the goal of a system like this, maybe even less than that. So those were those were important. We're going to hear more about this uh, system tomorrow. There's going to be a roundtable. Michael Howells is going to be taking part in that. It's not quite clear what that's going to entail in terms of new information, but uh, we'll we'll hear some policy advice on that again tomorrow. So that's sort of uh, that's those are some of the highlights of what Michael Howells had to say today. Uh, I think you'll hear next week when the RCMP are are having their opportunity to speak that they'll try to undermine the potential utility of the system at the time of the emergency alert system that is but uh, you know it was still really the best tool that the rcmp had at that time to provide a warning to the public of what was happening uh, and they didn't even consider using it so 
uh, that was uh, some very important testimony. I think you'll see some uh, some important recommendations coming out of that as well. So, okay, that's that's what I wanted to say about the alert system. Uh, and so now I want to switch topics and talk a little bit more about the death of Heather O'Brien. Now, uh, this was uh, on Plains Road near DeBert. Miss uh, O'Brien was uh, shot by uh, Gabriel Wartman sitting alone in her car, Volkswagen. And we heard from uh, Constable Ian Fahey, who was driving with uh, his partner, Constable Devonna Coleman. And they were going into DeBert and they came upon the scene. Their testimony, or sorry, Constable Fahey's testimony, we haven't heard testimony from Constable Coleman, although she has given a statement. Constable Fahey said that he arrived on the scene and provided what he called lethal overwatch. So he was uh, providing cover for Constable Coleman, who went to check out uh, Miss O'Brien in their vehicle. She indicated that her, her hands were too cold, and so she wasn't able to tell whether she was feeling a pulse or not. So they switched positions. Constable Fahey then checked, thought he felt a pulse, uh, heard some, some noises emanating, and uh, but then was tapped on the shoulder, he says, by Corporal Ivany, who took over uh, the care now, Corporal Ivany says there was uh, no such tap on the shoulder. He was the first one on the scene. He and his other partner, uh, Jeff Mahar, and they are both EMERT, uh, emergency medical uh, officers, so police officers, but trained uh, medically trained officers. And they had been involved the night before in Portapique, uh, had been involved with Lisa Banfield, had gone to other scenes as well that morning, and uh, had treated other or uh, tried to treat uh, some of the other victims. So there were some clear uh, problems, uh, contradictions with the two accounts. Another one was that, uh, of course, Constable Fahey is saying, we took her pulse, we tried to treat her, I was about to take her out of the vehicle. But then Corporal Ivany says, well, no, the door was closed. We had to, you know, I was going to break the passenger window. I look over and uh, Mahar is breaking the driver's window and then we checked on her. Uh, and then Corporal Ivany says he, he checked with his thumbs on Miss O'Brien's neck for a pulse, thought he felt something, and was told by, by I think it's Constable Mahara, might be Corporal, that, you know, make sure you do this properly. And so they checked uh, her other vital signs and found nothing. So what would, what would a judge do in the situation uh, to try to suss out those two stories and figure out you know, what might be, what may have actually been the case. So Constable Fahey says, uh, so, so the first thing is you look for neutral evidence, neutral, verifiable evidence. And we have some of that. We have some radio broadcasts on specific times. We also have a report of the vehicle from a Constable uh, Kat Bazaar, who used to be stationed in Anakinish, uh, who did reports of uh, various scenes, various crime scenes, and uh, did a report of this uh, Volkswagen and then you compare the statements and uh, you, you see see what uh, what you can make of those so first thing is we know that uh, constables Fahey and Coleman arrived at 10 15 37 because they they arrive at the Jetta because there was a radio broadcast at that point and it's at uh, paragraph 124 I recall uh, of the uh, statement uh, he says that there was uh, someone shot, and he says that over the radio. 
he also says he tried to put the car in park uh, and all of the things I've just said. Uh, Corporal Ivany uh, was on the radio at 10.14.41, so about a minute prior to uh, Fahey and Coleman's uh, radio broadcast, saying, Emert is, and then there's inaudible. Now, he was asked about that statement, and he says they were on the scene. That's what they were saying, that they were on the scene. So this is about a minute before the other broadcast. So it's like, well, they arrived on the scene, and then, you know, within a minute, perhaps get to the vehicle. What Corporal Ivany described when he gets to the vehicle is that there was a male and female officer there providing lethal overwatch. So, okay, well, that's somewhat consistent. At least we have the right people that are there. He's not denying that anybody is uh, was present. All right, so uh, we, ha we also have, of course, the GPS from uh, Constable Fahey's uh, vehicle, which confirms that they were on the scene. So though nobody's denying that they were there. We have uh, Constable Bazaire's report when she indicates that the Volkswagen was uh, in, you know, next to the woods. So it makes sense. Then you look back and say, well, it makes sense that Constable Fahey had to put the vehicle in park. Uh, it wasn't still running. Nobody else talked about putting the vehicle in gear or doing anything else with the vehicle's uh, gear at that point. The issue of the two front windows being broken would seem to tend to support uh, Corporal Ivany's view. Although, so we'll come back to that. Uh, but that, uh, the report of where the vehicle was, uh, you know, has, has some elements of both sides. Constable Coleman uh, gave a statement as well. Her report was consistent with that of uh, Constable Fahey, uh, and they, they were the first two on the scene. Now, Constable Fahey's statement was made on October 1st of 2021, so certainly uh, not immediate. Uh, Constable or Corporal Ivany gave a statement only in January of this year, so after the mass casualty was supposed to begin. Uh, so neither statement was particularly close in time to the events, so certainly there's an opportunity or a chance there that people will forget. Uh, you'd have to take that into account. Although uh, Constable Fahey made some notes at the time too, which are consistent with what uh, his other his other evidence and statement was. He describes, yes, the lethal overwatch, and then he notes, there's, there's some notes in Constable Fahey's statement where he sees that Miss O'Brien was shot in the eye. And uh, then in his statement, he says, he suggests that they kind of backed off at that point and were more concerned for a moment, at least, about the potential that the killer was still in the area. And the implication from what he's saying there, although you can't quite tell because of the redacted blacked out portions, is that the two officers were not going to take big risks at that time uh, because he knew uh, and he was, he was quite sure that Miss O'Brien was already dead. Now, contrast this with Constable Fahey's statement earlier about his plan, his and Constable Coleman's plan, had they encountered the killer, which was to ram him, shoot him, risk themselves, and he says several times throughout his statement, and uh, credibly so, I think that he was prepared to risk his uh, his life, his safety for for others and for the public. So that seems to suggest that he checked on Miss O'Brien and uh, did all those things. 
Corporal Ivney's statement at page 61, he says the Volkswagen was off the road, so that's consistent. He says the two regular RCMP members were there, one male, one female. He did not believe anyone had checked on the female at that point, but in the statement, he, he never asked anybody. Okay, so he may think he was the first one on the scene, but when he arrived, perhaps he was, there was nobody actively checking on Miss O'Brien at the time. So, you know, it may, it may be a fair but mistaken presumption on his part that he just never investigated. He said he spoke to the officers about a female, not uh, Miss O'Brien specifically. He doesn't say we, we can think that's who he's talking about. But again, this is a statement, you know, almost two years later. Uh, he dealt with many uh, elements of the crime scenes that night. Uh, in that morning so you know certainly the possibility is there that he could be mixing some things up and then the redacted portions of his statement on uh, page uh, 62 of his statement seem to suggest that corporal Ivany saw a chest wound first and then started treating miss o'brien thinking that you know there may be an opportunity to save her and then uh mahar points out the injury to her eye, the, the shot to her eye that uh, was certainly one presumes uh, the, the mortal wound. And then he reconsidered, that is, Corporal Ivany reconsidered his, his earlier conclusion that he felt a pulse with his thumb. Then they checked the other spots, determined that she was deceased. So what he says on page 62 is interesting. He says, and he, I'll quote, what he was seeing was that it didn't make sense that I was feeling a pulse from the nature of the trauma that he was observing. So that tells me that uh, Mahar saw the shot to the eye. Ivany originally did not, and that dictated his initial reaction. The two versions can mostly be reconciled, except for two very sort of uh, discrete points. One is... Ivany tapping Fahey on the shoulder and saying, I got this. Well, you know, in the whole course of events, maybe that's a fairly minor thing to remember or forget. Uh, and then the other one is the driver's door being operable. And nobody asked anybody about this, but it was, you know, if, who knows, uh, if uh, Fahey or Coleman slammed the door back after they treated, or if uh, Corporal Ivany was simply mistaken about that. So, uh, I tend to prefer Constable Ivany's version. I think a judge would as well. He That was really the one scene of uh, intense drama that he dealt with, whereas uh, Ivany dealt with many different scenes and I think would be more easily mixed up in uh, some of his testimony. Then, uh, you know, with Constable, or sorry, Corporal Ivany dealing with uh, so many scenes, uh, like I say, certainly easy for him to get things mixed up. Constable Coleman has given a statement. Mahar has not, and the commission is still seeking his out. So, you know, Fahey and Coleman, their accounts are consistent with one another. Mahar's uh, statement, we don't know what he might say, so uh, we can't check on that. Um, it seems uh, consistent that uh, with Constable Coleman's evidence that uh, they checked Miss O'Brien uh, for a pulse, and then Emert arrived and pulled her from the vehicle. So, difficult to reconcile these kinds of things. It's difficult when, you know, seemingly people that believe their own story and present it in that fashion have directly contradictory evidence. Uh, honest but mistaken belief, perhaps. Uh, difficult to reconcile, but I think in this case there's... Um, 
enough there to have a sense of what really happened, that Fahey and Coleman did some treatment, were fairly soon after relieved by uh, Corporal Ivney and Mahar, and then provided lethal overwatch while they were doing their work. Uh, but unfortunately, it seemed like from the beginning, uh, it's unlikely that Miss O'Brien could have been saved regardless. So once people observed the nature of her injury, uh, then really that was uh, uh, that was the end of the story in many ways. So um, unfortunate, but uh, I thought I'd go through some of those statements and some of the factors that I think uh, a judge would review. I'd be curious to see what the commission's uh, conclusion is on this, if they if they delve into the evidence to that extent um, and see what that looks like when report comes out in November. All right, so those were uh, two topics today. Video went on a little long. Apologize for that, I guess. But uh, so that was the Michael Hallow's expert testimony on the alert ready system and then some additional analysis of uh, the tragic death of, of Heather O'Brien. So that's everything for today. And I'll be back tomorrow with uh, an analysis of the emergency alert roundtable. So uh, until then, uh, thanks for watching and we'll see you next time.